0: Well, let's, uh, let's grab our Bibles and go to Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12. Um, if you are a child of the 80s, or, you know, that was kind of your, your, your prime spot in life like it was mine, has the best music ever, and, uh, but if you hear the word Twin Peaks, then, uh, then no doubt you're thinking of that kind of bizarre, weird, surreal uh, crime drama uh, called Twin Peaks uh, from that era. Uh, maybe if you're a... Um, a native of Southern California you spent any time up at Lake Arrowhead or those you know, there's that little unincorporated area um, called Twin Peaks. But when you open your Bible, interestingly, you actually run into uh, Twin Peaks. There are, there are two mountains that's, uh, that uh, play a prominent role in Scripture, you could say, and yet they play two very, very different roles. And these mountains are Mount Sinai and Mount Zion. Okay, and they're very, very different. Mount, uh, I, I have never heard, in fact, I thought about this, I've never heard a song, a worship song about Mount Sinai. I've heard them about Mount Zion. Uh, Mount Sinai is, is uh, the place where Moses went up to, to meet with God. Mount Zion is a place where Jesus will come down to be with his people. Mount Sinai is located in the land of captivity. Uh, Mount Zion is located in the promised land. Mount Sinai is a place where um, it's fearful and dark and trembling and not so in Zion. Mount Sinai is a place where, uh, of the law and, and Mount Zion is a place of grace. Mount, Zion, Mount Sinai is a place of religion. Mount Zion is a place of the gospel. And, and what they represent, I guess we could say it this way, and really what I want to wrestle with you today in this passage is they represent two fundamentally different ways of relating to God. That is that you have the option to relate to God in a Sinai way or in a Zion way. And what the writer of Hebrews is going to say to you, I do. I want to make sure that you relate to God in one particular way because if you don't, things get really bad. See, these two ways of relating to God, the Sinai way is this, I obey and therefore I'm accepted. We call that religion. The other way is Mount Zion and that is that I am am accepted and I'm loved and, and, and God cherishes me, therefore I obey. Two totally different ways of relating to God. And what the writer of Hebrews has been telling us since the very beginning, remember he's, a, he's, he's most likely has a Jewish background himself. He's writing to Jewish people who know their Bibles. He knows his Bible, and he's trying to convince them, do not, I know you're, you're facing persecution. Some of you want to give up and run back to religion. You want to run back to the safety of, of Judaism is at least how you see it. And I want to show you it's not safe at all. I want to show you in every way that I can that Jesus is better. Jesus is greater. He's superior in every way. Stay where he has you. Don't run back, okay? So he's going to compare and contrast these two mountains in chapter 12, verse 18 to 24. And so if you have your Bibles, just follow along with me and we'll kind of read a little and talk a little. And that's kind of how we do it around here if you're new this morning, okay? And if you don't have a Bible, there should be one uh, near you and you can grab that. And uh, we'd love for you to just follow along with us, okay? So the first thing we're going to look at is the first mountain. We'll call this uh, religion mountain or the mountain of religion. Now watch what he does here. Look at verse 18. For you have not come to what may be touched. So, so he's just doing this. You haven't come to this place. If you're a Christian, you don't come here. You don't live here. You live in a different spot. And we'll get to that different spot in a moment. You have not come to what may be touched. Now, why does he say that? How does that follow from verse 17? If you look at verse 17, he talks about Esau. And Esau was a man, we talked about it last week, who who said, man, I'll take all the blessings of God and put them over here, and I'll take my hunger and a bowl of soup and put it over here, and I'll choose soup. I'll choose what I can taste and touch and feel. And the writers of Scripture are so blown away that he would do that. He's one of the most... Um, oh I don't know people in scripture that nobody has anything good to say about so so he says okay so you haven't come to what may be touched so now we get to find out he's going to start describing this religion mountain And what is religion mountain like? Well, the first thing we're going to find out is that it's an unapproachable mountain. So let's keep reading. You have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and the voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them, for they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Like he needs to die. Um, so this is a mountain that is totally unapproachable. Now, now, what is he talking about? When he talks about all these, again, he's, he refers to Old Testament scripture all the time. And here, he's taking us back to Exodus chapter 19. Exodus is the second book in your Bible, the 19th chapter, you can find it. And, and, and what happens in Exodus 19? Exodus 19 is God speaking through Moses and saying, okay, tell the people to get ready because I'm about to come down on this mountain, Mount Sinai, And I'm going to come in blazing fire and in all my holiness, and I'm going to give to you the law. I'm going to give to you, actually, he's going to give them the Ten Commandments. This is where this is preceding the Ten Commandments. And Moses is going to go up on the mountain. He's going to hear from God. He's going to write things down. And at some point, the people are even hearing from God, and they say, Tell him to stop. He's terrifying. And so he says, he says, you 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 don't live on this mountain. This is this unapproachable mountain. So he told him, he said, he said to the people, here's what I need you to do. God is about to come down, so I want you to get ready. And I want you to purify yourselves and I want you to bathe yourselves and I want you to change your clothes and I, and I want you to watch what you eat and I want you to abstain from sex and all of these things, all these things that just made them ready to even be in proximity to God, not that they could be near God. And the unmistakable message of Exodus 19 is that God on religion mountain is a holy unapproachable God and you are defiled sinners and there is no way you can even get close to him in fact if even a dumb beast who doesn't know what he's doing walks and touches the edge of the mountain kill it because they have approached my holiness and they can't do that in other words you're just like dumb beasts and you deserve to die the same death that they do for getting next to my holiness. See, this is life on Religion Mountain. This is, this is, this is where you go. If you want to live, if, if your desire, how you relate to God is, I want to relate to God in a religious way. And he says, here's what you get. If you think that somehow you can earn and work your way up to God, then no, this is what you get. You get this holy mountain where there is no access to God, where you are wicked, where you can't be good enough, where you can't clean yourself up enough to get next to God. The writer goes, do you want to live there? Like, is this, is this really where you want to live, a place where you, 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 God is going to be your judge and, and punish you and, and you're never going to make it up? You, and he says, man, I don't want you to go back there. See, see, there's a comfort in religion. And part of the reason is that in many ways we can, we can touch it. It feels, it feels tangible. It feels like, okay, I know what the rules are. I know that if I do X, Y, and Z and don't do A, B, C, then I'm good. And so I, I, I feel like I'd, I'd, I'd like that versus the life of faith that God's calling me to. And the writer's saying, don't do this. This is an unapproachable mountain. But then he's going to say, it's not just an unapproachable mountain. It's a fearful mountain. Look at verse 21. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. I mean, this is afraid, right? I mean, actually being so afraid that your body shakes. This is, this is the, what we're supposed to see in this is Moses, this, this great man, this, this man that's nearly worshipped by the Jews, saying even he couldn't come close to this mountain. Even he trembled going up to that mountain. And the only reason he can come is God said, come on up, Moses, and I'm terrified to go up there. This is this is one option for how you can relate to God. There's the question, the big question of this passage: is how do you relate to God? How do you want to relate to God? Don't you be religion? See, um, is your the way you want to relate to Him is that uh, I obey, therefore I'm accepted. I try to do the good things; that will outweigh the bad things, and then then God has to accept me. Is that is that the choice you're going to make? See, what's crazy about this is it's actually possible for two people to be sitting here in this room right now, right next to each other, and one lives on Grace Mountain and the other lives on Religion Mountain. I mean, they, they, they both give, they both pray, um, they both serve, they both, they both try to live decent moral lives, but they live in two totally separate Mountains, you understand, these, these are universes apart. Now, how do you know? How, how do I know which mountain I live on? Well, let's talk about them in turn. I want to first talk about how you know if you're religious, and I want to talk about how you know if you relate to God through grace and the gospel, okay? So we'll first talk about, about how, how we relate to God through religion, okay? So let's talk about motivation, the religion and motivation, okay? So, so, so what does this mean? It, me- it means this, that, that your motivation, the primary, one of the primary, we've called it before, drive shafts of the human heart is just simply fear. We're so afraid. We're afraid of all kinds of things. But religion comes along, makes it even worse. Right? I'm, I'm afraid that I will be rejected by God. I'm afraid that if I don't obey, God will stop loving me. I'm afraid I'll lose out on his love. And so I'm terrified of God. And I don't necessarily obey him because I want to. I'm not a good neighbor, I'm not a good husband, I'm not a good wife, I'm not a good child, I'm not a good worker because I I necessarily have this real desire to be. Part of what motivates me, this deep-seated motivation, is I'm afraid. I'm afraid if I don't do it right in God's eyes, he will reject me. And so I don't rush toward obedience. I kind of reluctantly go towards obedience because I'm I'm just afraid. See, that's, that's the primary motivation of religion. But how about religion and pride and despair? And here's what I mean by this one. Religious people. Okay, who are religious people? See, when you hear that word, let me, let me make sure we get a good definition here. Uh, religious people aren't necessarily people that are, are associated with some organized religion. Religious people may not even go to church. Religious people may be completely secular. But what I mean when I say religion is that you have some standard that you are trying to live up to in order to be accepted, in order to feel like you're doing things right. And that could be one of your own making. may have no connection to an organized religion at all. It just may be, you know what, here's what I think it means to be a good person. Here's what I think I'm supposed to do. Here's what I think I'm not supposed to do. Now, what happens when you, in your mind, you've got the list, do, 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 don't, 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 and you actually keep the list? You feel prideful. You feel superior, like I'm actually better than you because I kept my list. I'm a pretty amazing guy because I've done everything I'm supposed to do, so I feel this pride. But what happens when I don't keep the list? What happens when I don't live up to this standard that I've set for myself or the standard that religion sets for me? Well, now I feel self-loathing. Now I feel despondent. I feel despair. Now, in my experience, no one lives in the world of pride exclusively or in the world of despair exclusively. They tend to fluctuate wildly between the two. I mean, some days you're like, man, I'm doing awesome. This is great. I've, I've been, I've been kind of keeping to the, you know, this for the last six weeks. I'm feeling really good about myself. And then you go through a season of despair of thinking, man, I am a loser. I can't believe this. I, I, can't, I can't seem to, to do any of this stuff. That's religion. Religion will bring you pride or despair. Well, how about religion and suffering? So we've talked about this before. Religion in this sense is an awfully lot like karma, right? That is that God or the universe or whatever it is that you think is out there or not out there kind of owes you as long as you behave, as long as you reach your standard, as long as you do what you're supposed to do. If you have held up your end of the bargain, then you deserve a happy life. You deserve a good life. You deserve not to suffer. And how many of us fall into this? So when suffering comes, we think, oh, see, it's kind of that for every action. There's an equal and opposite reaction, and the universe is just reacting to my badness. Or what happens? What happens when suffering comes along to somebody who thinks that if I'm religious enough and I'm good enough, I shouldn't have to suffer. I should have a relatively happy life. And I should certainly have a better life than somebody who isn't as religious as me, who isn't as moral as me. What, uh, what happens to somebody when suffering comes? Not, not if, when, right? We're all going to suffer. What happens to this person? I would suggest to you that a co- one of a couple things happen. Either first, and maybe most likely, you're angry at God or you're angry at the universe if you don't think there's a God and you think there's some sort of karmic operating system out there, you're looking to say, wait a second, this is not fair. I upheld my part of the bargain. Now you're supposed to do for me and help me to have a a good, happy, normal life. I should not be suffering. Or or maybe you don't get angry at God. Maybe you get angry at yourself. Because what your suffering proves to you is that you didn't. Keep the standard. I wouldn't be suffering if I had kept the standard. And so there's this there's this feeling of like, man, I'm I'm such a loser. I'm, I'm this horrible person. This is someone who lives on religion mountain, motivated by fear, feeling pride or despair, and think they shouldn't suffer. See. Religion, religion is simply our attempt to avoid Christ as our Savior. Now, I used to think, why would anybody, why would anybody want to avoid Jesus as Savior? And I don't think it was because I was a Christian and thought, man, why? I honestly thought most people would be like, yeah, I like the idea that Christ forgives my sins, Until I realized there is a whole lot of people that find the message of the gospel radically offensive. I mean, just totally. I mean, think about it. Because what do we say? Our Savior, because of my sin, because of your sin, hung on a cross, died a horrific, horrific death. The wrath of God was poured out of him. Now, what does that say about your sin and my sin? And most people are like, wait a second, I'm not that bad that somebody had to die horrifically for me. I mean, I'm way better than that. You're telling me a man had to be crucified? That's offensive. That's offensive. I I, I, I reject that. What I think is that all that God is wanting me to do is just be a good person. I can earn my way up to him. And the Bible from beginning to end, Old Testament and New Testament, Sinai to Zion, is going to tell you, no, you can't. No, you cannot earn your way. No, you cannot be good enough. No, you cannot be pure enough. If you choose to relate to God through religion, He is totally unapproachable. He is totally holy. And what will happen is if you try to approach Him on those terms, you'll die eternally. So Mount Sinai is the bad news. So what's the good news? There's another mountain. So now watch what He does. Now He's going to talk to us about... The next mountain, look at verse 22. But you have come to Mount Zion, the city of God, the heavenly Jerusalem. Okay, see what he just did? So you don't live here. Let's talk about Grace Mountain. You don't live. If you're a Christian, you don't live on Religion Mountain. You live over here on Grace Mountain. And the writer of Hebrews is saying, stay there. Do not leave Grace Mountain. I've already told you how horrible it is over there. Let me just say something, by the way. Uh, Mount Zion is is a, 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 a spiritual mountain, okay? I mean, he says you come to the city of God, the heavenly Jerusalem. You understand, in Christianity, we have no geographical center, right? We don't go anywhere in Christianity to be closer to God, okay? Come to Israel someday when we go. And you know what you're doing? You are not getting closer to God, You are learning, you're understanding your Bible, but God did not say, here I am up in Jerusalem and if you'll come to Jerusalem, if you'll get baptized in the waters of the Jordan, boy, then things will be different for you. You'll actually be in a more holy place. No, we don't believe that. So in fact, when we went to Israel last time, I kind of huddled up with everybody. We were there at the Western Wall. And the Western Wall is a place where where Jews believe if they go and they make their prayers and stick their prayers in the wall, why do they do that? Because that's the, the wall that is closest to where the temple would have been, the presence of God, where the ark would have been stored. So they think, if I draw near and put my prayer there, then then that prayer is going to be closer to God. He's more likely to answer it. I'm, I'm in proximity to God. No, and I remember huddling up and saying, no, listen, that is pagan. That is not how we believe. We don't go there to get closer to God. You are as close to God in Glendora as you are at the Western Wall. There is no geographical center so now what the writer of Hebrews is going to do is go, okay, I want to show you the glories of Grace Mountain. I want to show you what you come to when you come to this mountain. And it's wonderful. Okay, so look what he says. He says, you, you haven't come to that mountain, Sinai. You've come to this mountain. He says, it's the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. Okay, so you come to a city. You are now, as you, as you by faith believe in Jesus, you come to be a citizen of heaven. With all the rights of citizenry, right, you, you get everything that's coming to you. This is what Paul says. Paul says in Philippians chapter 3, starting in verse 17, he says, brothers, join out. now." Before, I, before we recite, look at this. I want you to look for, as Paul talks, look for Sinai and look for Zion. Listen how the two people relate. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who follow according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. They're in destruction. They're glory, they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. This is Esau. But our citizenship is in heaven. And from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly bodies to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him even to subject all things to Himself. Our citizenship's in heaven, the city of God. That's what we get. But he keeps going. He says the next thing is is we we come to the place of angels. So so keep going, he says, and to innumerable angels, that that literally means thousands upon thousands. They didn't have a word for billions, trillions. He just looks and says, There's a whole lot of angels, and they are in festal gathering. I have never used the word festal ever in my life. What does that mean? It's like, like what it sounds like, like festival, joy. They're in a joyful gathering. Now, what he's wanting to see is what a radical difference from Mount Sinai. At Mount Sinai, there's trumpet blasts and sound and burning fire and all these clouds and darkness and it's doom up on them. I mean, this is Mount Doom in many ways. But here on Mount Zion, it's celebration, it's joy, it's laughter, and you come in and the angels are separating, are celebrating and you, you get to be right there with them. This is the mountain you come to. We come, he says, 30 says, we come to the assembly of uh, the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. <laughs> so, so remember what the firstborn means. The firstborn male of any family in, in, in this time got a double blessing, got more, got double the inheritance than everybody else. And he says, he's talking to men and women. He's talking to Jews and Gentiles, talking to all of us and saying, you know what happens? You know what happens when you come into the family of God? There are no second borns. There are no third, fourth, fifth borns. There is, this is a gathering of elder sons. This is a gathering where we all get that inheritance. inheritance. In fact, what's the crazy thing about this is that Jesus is called the firstborn and we're called the firstborn." Like we get the inheritance he gets. This is this is mind-blowing. He says, This why would you want to return? Why would you want to leave the mountain of grace and run to the mountain of religion? Why would you want to relate to God that way? He keeps going. He says, but we come to the presence of God, right? To God, the judge of all. That is, that, that we come into the presence of God. We, we actually get to draw near to him. The, the, Revelation 21 says that, that he, he will be our God. We will be his people. And I love this because it goes on to say, and he will wipe every tear from your eye. God. Not if you relate to him from, through religion, he won't. He won't be wiping any tears. But if you relate to him on this mountain of grace, if you come to him through Jesus Christ, and he's there and says, you know what? When this is all over, you're going to come to God. You are in his presence right now. You have have all the ability, according to Hebrews chapter 4, you can draw near boldly to the throne of grace in time of need, and God will meet it. You draw near to God. He says, Will you come into the you come you come to the spirits of the saints? So he says to God the judge of all and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, right? So here they are. They've been they are the dead that have risen and gone, or the, the dead in Christ, and, and there they are in the presence of God, and they have been made perfect. They didn't, they didn't have a righteousness of their own. It wasn't because they were law keeping, it wasn't because because they were, you know, more moral than everybody else. No, they were made perfect. And you come into that, that means you're being made perfect. This is what's happening to you. He says we, and then finally look at verse 24, it says we come to Jesus. And to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. Now why, why would he list him last? Right, in, in, in for us, if something's that, you know, if I have a list of things and one is last, I think of last as least. But for them... In the Greek language, and, and, and Jews would would they would they could position things in a couple of ways that that emphasized it. So, so they, they might put it first. But if they put it last, it's a little bit like saying this and um, and lastly, because it's most important, this Jesus. Lastly, we come, most importantly, we come to Jesus, the one who gave his life to give us this new covenant. Jesus Christ says he takes the elements of the communion of the, of the Lord's Supper on that day and when he's celebrating the Passover, he says this is the new covenant in my blood, right? And, and the writer of Hebrews says the, new, the, 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 the mediator of a new covenant and to the sprinkled blood, Now, what's that about? Well, this is, of course, going back to the Old Testament sacrifices where covenants would be made. Here, I promise to do this, and you promise to do that. We make a covenant, and God says, I'm going to seal my part of the covenant with blood. But this time, it's not the sealing of blood that comes from bulls and goats and calves and pigeons and doves and lambs. I'm going to do it with my son. It's the first time he sealed any covenant with the blood of a man. And he says, I'm doing it through my son. And boy, you can be guaranteed that the promise I make you is going to happen because it's sealed with the blood of my son. Then he says something very interesting. Look Look at how he ends this. And to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Now, what does that mean? Let me, let, me, let me kind of unpack this, first of all. He says, okay, so there's these two bloods. There's the blood of Christ, and there's the blood of Abel. And he says, Christ speaks a better word. So both of them speak. And here's what he means. Both of them are meant to teach you and I something. Both of them are telling us something, and we're supposed to hear it. So what are they telling us? Now, so, so who's Abel? Abel, of course, we had in, in, in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, we, we hear about Adam and Eve. God creates them. Adam and Eve ultimately have two sons. Eventually, they'll have three. But they start off and they have Cain and Abel. And if you know the story, Cain is jealous of his brother Abel because he brings a better sacrifice to God. And he's so jealous, in fact, that he kills, he murders his brother Abel. And God shows up in the garden and he's walking, you know, in in the land. And he's walking and he says, he says, Cain, you know, where are you? Here you are. And he says, okay, where's your brother Abel? God knows exactly where he is. He's not like I'm I'm mystified where, you know, how did you bury his body and I can't find it. He says, where's your brother Abel? And he says, "My, my brother's keeper. And God returns to him and says to him, Cain, your brother's blood cries out from the ground. That's what the writer of Hebrews is talking about. What does the blood crying from the ground say? What's it speaking? It's saying guilty, sinner, condemned, must be punished, banish him. There is no remedy here. It's just law. That's that's the word of of religion mountain. that's, That's the word that the blood of Abel speaks. And this is why he says, but the blood of Christ, the sprinkled blood of Christ speaks a better word. What does it speak? You can be forgiven. There is hope. I I have received the sacrifice of my son on your behalf. His blood has been spilled so yours doesn't have to be. And I will forgive you and I will cleanse you from all unrighteousness. I will take away all your guilt. I will take away all your shame. I will take your punishment. See what he means? This is where he's saying, oh, why would you go back? Why would you leave this for that? Why would you want to relate to God any other way? Why would you not want to relate to him through grace? So how do you know? How do you know if you're living on Grace Mountain? We've already identified how you, how some ways you can identify whether you live on Religion Mountain, but, but what's the difference? Well, let's look at, at these again. Let's kind of cycle back through them. Let's first look at the gospel motivation. Okay, with, the, with religion, if your motivation, if the impulse of your heart, if you're motivated by fear, we said that's religion, right? That I'm scared. I'm scared of what what I might lose. I'm afraid I might be rejected. But the gospel says Christ has died for me. There's no chance of me being rejected. He's paid the ultimate price. He's not going to cast me away. So now, what's the impulse of my heart? What's driving me? What's the motivation? I'm so grateful. I'm just grateful. You see what I mean? These are two totally separate universes. I obey, therefore I'm accepted. I'm accepted. I'm loved. Therefore, I just want to please God. I, I just have a great desire uh, to please Him. This is what motivates me. Or how about this? How about, how about the gospel identity, right? So we talked about pride and despair being sort of the identity of somebody who's religi- religious. So now what is it on the gospel side, right? Over on the religious side, it's like, you know, I... I have to do something. I have to actually be better than you. In fact, my self-worth, my sense of worth is if I'm better than you are. But the the gospel comes along and says, no, God loves me. God loves me in spite of all my flaws. He sees my lack of worth, and he still, while I was a sinner, Christ died for me. And he loves it, in fact, that I will be humble enough to go to him and say, Jesus, I'm flawed. Jesus, I'm broken. Jesus, I see these sins in me. And he's like, I love that. I love that because I want to help you with this. I'm not going to kick you out. I'm not going to slap you around. I'm going to say, this is, this is what I do, right? You, you've come to me and you're humble enough to realize this. And I just, I love this. So now my, now I'm not, I'm not crushed by despair i'm not elevated by pride there's a humility that says i'm just so grateful for what god has done for me and he loves me in spite of all my flaws in fact look what tim keller says i love this quote he says the gospel says that i'm so flawed that jesus had to die for me but i'm so loved and valued that jesus was glad to die for me i love that jesus was glad well how about the gospel and suffering how do, we, how do we process suffering in, in, on Grace Mountain? If I'm living here on Grace Mountain versus Religion Mountain, how do I process suffering? Well, remember, remember the religious mountain, it was this, you know, I, I, I deserve a better life. I've upheld my part of the bargain. There should be no suffering. And if there's any suffering, it should be pretty minimal because I'm being a moral guy and I'm certainly being more moral than you are. And so if I'm being more moral than you are, I should have a better life than you. You know what the gospel says? You know what grace says? Grace says if that's the operating system that you think the universe operates by, if you believe in some sort of karmic universe, all you got to do is open your eyes and realize that must be broken. That cannot possibly be how the world works. Every person in this room knows a good person who's going through bad things. Like I, I, I have a friend. We have a family friend, and she is slowly, horrifically dying from Lou Gehrig's disease. It's just awful. I mean, it just slowly, kind of takes away your ability to function over time, and over a three-year period. And I don't know how much longer Sue has to live. And you look at that, and you go, "That's not fair." This is a godly woman. This woman who, man, when we were kids, we'd go, all go to her house. I mean, she was one of these sort of like life coach type people that you just like, she just poured out wisdom and you could just go to her and she was always so full of joy and life and laughter and loved Jesus. It's not fair. See, if you, if you live on Religion Mountain, you look at that kind of stuff and say, yeah, this is, this is, this is, this is terrible, but this is what I get. But the gospel... Says, no, no, no. Don't you understand? Jesus Christ, the most morally perfect man who ever lived, suffered horrifically. Right? Mocked, ridiculed, poverty, uh, tortured, murder, anything you can think of. So, in other words, the gospel is this resource. Grace Mountain is a resource for people who are suffering, where they don't go, this doesn't make sense, I don't get it, this shouldn't be happening. They look at it and say, hey, if it happened to Jesus, it could happen to me, it will happen to me, and yet I've been given a resource that I go, I serve a Savior who has walked right where I am. He didn't, he didn't elevate himself above everything and say, no, I was, I was impervious to any kind of suffering. No, he suffered right with me. So there is no suffering that I can't go through, that I can't look to Jesus and say, man, I know how you feel. I've been right where you are this is amazing so which mountain do you live on like like what what how do you relate to god you say man i want to live on grace mountain chris i think this is i i i want to live there so what you're saying is what i should do is is believe in jesus christ sort of get into a personal relationship with them and, and i can do whatever i want that sounds like an awesome deal And you would never say that. No one who has experienced radical, sacrificial grace would say, I can have this personal relationship with Jesus and do anything I want. Not possible. In fact, if you really understood what he did for you, you would understand that he lays claim over to your entire life and says, I can ask you to do anything I want because I've saved you. Because I rescued you. See, um, let, me, let me do it this way. In uh, January of 1989, I asked Michelle Bennington to marry me. And she said yes, right? One of the greatest days of my life. I put the ring on her finger. And our whole relationship changed, right? In some essence. Right? We, were, we loved each other. But now, like we're saying to each other, I wanna, I want, I wanna be with you and run this race till the end of our lives. I, I wanna go the distance with you, Michelle. I wanna go the distance with you, Chris. We've sealed it with a ring. We're gonna enter into a depth of relationship that I have with no other human being on this planet. Now, now, when she said yes, I didn't think this. I didn't think, great! She just said yes to me. Now I can live however I want. Now I can go and and just do, sow my wild oats and do it because I've got this relationship with Michelle. I can have a ball and she doesn't care and it doesn't matter. We would never talk like that. No, how do you talk? You look and say, my gosh, she loves me. She, She wants to be my wife. Now I want to do everything I can to please her. Not because I have to but because she said yes to me. I want to anticipate her needs. I want to delight her. See, that's how you talk. That's what love, that's what what sacrificial love does. It doesn't make you just go, I can do whatever I want. How do you relate to God? Do you live on Grace Mountain or do you live on Religion Mountain? Because there's only two ways. See, every... Every religion in the world sent you a teacher. And here's what the teacher said. The teacher comes and I'm going to show you the way to scale the mountain and reach the divine. This is every religion in the world. This is your religion of your own making. I'm going to show you how to work your way up and scale that mountain so you can touch the divine. Only Christianity says this. Only the gospel says Jesus didn't come as a teacher. He came as a savior. And he came down the mountain to you and me. And he says, I'm going to do for you what you can't do for yourself. And you follow me. And if you're with me, then when we get to the edge of that mountain, if you're not sheltered in me, if you're not protecting me, you'll be incinerated if that's how you decide you want to relate to God. Next week, we're going to hear that God is a consuming fire. But if you're in me, if you have put your trust in me, then God has come down to you not to teach you how to be a better person, but to save you and do what you can't do for yourself. Why would you want to relate to God in any other way? Because there's only two choices. You can live on the mountain of religion. Well, no, you can live at the edge of the mountain, and you'll die. Or you can live on Grace Mountain where God reaches down and says, come on, And look at all that you get. Let's pray.